Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Pamela Lopez Dawson. And we have the privilege of being here at the Directors Guild of America today interviewing Miguel Valenti. Miguel is a multi-hyphenate. He, uh, first of all, is the Lincoln Professor of Ethics and the Arts at Arizona State University. He is a film and television producer, an entertainment attorney, and an advisor on media and entertainment-related issues. He's written a book um, about ethics in entertainment, and um, we're really very lucky and very excited to have him here with us Thanks today. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit, just to begin, how you came to be involved in the film industry? I know you have a degree from Yale. You have two degrees from Yale, one from the law school and one from the uh, regular college. And um, did you set out to, be, to work in film when you began uh, your college career, say? No, not, not at all. Uh, at, at that point, Yale had nothing resembling a film program on the undergraduate level. Uh, there were a few people interested, but... That was back in the days where film was one of those vocational things that you didn't do at an Ivy League school. And um, I was heavily involved in theater. Uh, and um, due to, shall we say, some parental pressure, uh, I actually got what was considered a useful degree and went on to law school. Uh, and uh, then I worked as a lawyer in New York on Wall Street for five years, and I figured, well, you know what, I'm going to be dead by the time I'm 40 if I keep doing this. And quite um, by accident, I ended up uh, sharing an apartment with a guy in New York who was also interested in theater and who had been for two years to, I believe it's UCLA Law School, uh, Film School, sorry. And we began talking and we ended up uh, co-producing a couple of theatrical productions, some live music uh, events. And then he said, why don't we try a short film? And that was it. I got the bug and, uh, uh, and it's, I've been doing it ever since. One of the things that we run into as far as uh, being filmmakers and coming at, from, at it from a different point of view is uh, we are often confused about legal ramifications of different things, contracts and that kind of thing. Do you find that being a lawyer has helped you extensively in the filmmaking field? Oh, yeah, enormously. Uh, first of all, it helped uh, in my, I think, 13, 14 years in Hollywood because when you can work into the conversation that you're a lawyer, people will take you a little more seriously. They'll take your phone calls. Either that or they'll throw things at you. It's one or the other. <laughs> and what I very quickly did with my legal practice was I honed in on entertainment issues. So now if I come on to a film project, I also do all of the legal and investment work that's involved in the project. And it's been very, very helpful in kind of sorting out what works and what doesn't and what the ramifications are and how do we get out of this mess we've gotten ourselves into. And it's just been very, very useful. So would your advice be to um, a person who was embarking on a small independent film, what would your advice be regarding legal? Would they hire a lawyer from the beginning? What, how, would they come on as a legal rep? How, how would someone go about getting um, legally sound representation? Basically, as soon as you start taking other people's money that, uh, that's not coming out of your bank account or your parents' bank account, you need a lawyer. Because 
once you start taking other people's money, you're putting them at risk. If you do something wrong from a liability point of view and somebody gets hurt or property gets damaged or papers are misfiled, you can end up with your investors being in trouble or being audited by the IRS. And I can tell you from experience, there's, there aren't too many things that are worse than that. And uh, you really need to protect them. It's your responsibility. So before they sign that check, you need to consult with an, an attorney and make sure that you're not putting them in an awkward position. And is that when you form an LLC? I understand. Is that the, the kind of classic structure for a film? Well, the two structures that I've used are an LLC and a limited partnership. And they both, you can form either one of these vehicles over the internet without involving a lawyer. But anything that's done that generically without talking to someone about your specific situation is a little bit risky. Uh, everybody has different concerns when it comes to investing their money in a film project. And you really need someone that you can call and say, well, all right, now this person wants to do, uh, do this as an offshore company or this person wants to um, uh, put a, a sort of time release on the funds so that they only get uh, we only get a piece of it every couple of weeks. How do we handle that legally? None of the generic online services are going to tell you how to do that. And you risk, again, putting your investors in a bad position or yourself in a bad position. You know, Camel and I were... In, uh, we were renting some equipment, some video equipment, and we were in this uh, store in the valley. And we were watching this film that they were showing on the screen there, and it was really a riot. And we said, you know, what is this film? And the person said, it's called The Last Skeleton, Lost, Lost. Skeleton of Cadavra. <laughs> and could you tell us something about that film? That's a film that you produced, is that right? That's correct. Um, best production experience of my life. Um, Thus far, anyway. I'm not dead yet. Uh, sometimes I feel like I am, but I'm not. Uh, that was a, a close friend of mine at the time uh, called me up one day and said, do you think we could make a film for $40,000? And at the time, I was sitting in a very long line waiting to valet my car at the polo lounge. And I was thinking, you know what? This is a lunch for 25 people. I'll bet it's going to cost just about $40,000. It was very <laughs> ironic where I got the phone call. And he, I, I said, well, it would depend on the film, but sure, let's, let's talk about it. And he said, well, I've got one for you. And he put together this script. And um, when we did our first table reading, we could not stop laughing. It, it, it's a spoof of the old sci-fi films of the 50s and 60s, the old Roger Corman films, where everyone speaks like this and it's ultra formal. And you can see all the wires that make the monsters move. And, and the, the lead monster looks like a walking broccoli stalk, you know, and all this terrible stuff. And, uh, and we put it together with a bunch of up-and-coming actors, some of whom have done all of whom have done serious roles in, in working for directors like Spielberg and you know this they did out of friendship and we all did everything we we rented cabins as our locations we cooked we cleaned the cabins we built the scenery ourselves everybody pitched in there were no 
no crossed lines of, you know, well, that's your job, that's not my job, and I'm certainly not going to clean the toilet because I'm an actor and, you know, all of that. It was just an incredibly pleasant, if freezing cold, experience. <laughs> and we did a screening for the American Cinematheque New Directors Program, and we had over 600 people show up. Wow. And from that screening, an executive at Sony, Mike Schlesinger, uh, saw the film, loved it, and we ended up doing a deal for uh, for an international release with Sony. And they spent more transferring the film from our little Canon XL1 camera and little mini DV tapes uh, to 35 millimeters so they could make release prints than we had spent on the film by about two and a half times. Wow. So they actually released it theatrically on 35 that's right. And it played every major market in the U.S. And uh, then they did a DVD and the whole – they treated it as a real film, which was a wonderful thing. And our total budget was under $40,000. We spent a little bit more than that on publicity. But to put it in the can, get it edited and ready to go cost $40,000. And when was that? What year did it come out? Uh, 2001. Yeah, I think that that's probably a, a cult classic, or it, sh or it should be. We um, I, you know, there was a <laughs> – while we were watching it, of course, then we went about our business. Somebody else came in the room, and they started watching it, and they said the same thing. What is this movie? Because it's, it's unique. It's something you guys could, should check out. Well, and, and just when you think it can't get any stupider, it gets stupider. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. And we found that our demographic runs from 7 to 70. Kids love it because it's easy for them to understand because it's so stupid. And adults who remember those movies like it because it's a spoof of movies they thought were terrible at the time anyway. The only people we really lose are people who had no interest in those movies when they originally came out. Uh, if they didn't like what we're spoofing, then, you know, you're in a losing position. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, so you said you spent um, many years here in Los Angeles. Um, what Were you just producing films, or what other things were you doing while you were here in Los Angeles? I tend to do far too many things for my own good. In the years that I was here, I was producing films. I directed two films. I tried writing a film, and uh, that was sort of disappointing experience. And I did some teaching, uh, especially once my book came out. I did some of the continuing education teaching. I taught at USC in the continuing education program. Uh, I lectured on the topics in my book, and I did legal work for other people's films. Can you tell us what, um, in a nutshell, I mean, I don't expect you to tell us your whole book, but can you tell us something about what you mean by ethics in entertainment? What do you mean by ethics? Good grief. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, um, I guess what the book is about is I'm advocating – we're not trying to tell anybody what kind of films to make. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a First Amendment advocate, and I wouldn't listen to anybody try and tell me what kind of films I could make. Uh, so why should I – tell them what kind of films they can make. So the whole point of the book is to get people new to this business and film students to think about the choices that they're making. I find that too often in Hollywood, people do things because they've been done that way before. Uh, and they, uh, 
they they mimic filmmakers that they like, and that's fine in the beginning. I mean, all great master painters mimicked each other too, but you have to grow beyond that. Otherwise, you're really not contributing anything new to the art. And I find that most all of my students want to be Quentin Tarantino, and they will only go so far as to copy what he's done. And the whole book is about, no, everything you do really involves ethical choice. Um, You need to choose whether to have certain kinds of violence in your film or portray smoking or drug abuse or suicide or diversity issues. You really need to, to make a conscious decision. And that's what it's all about is, you know, make a conscious decision. If you want to ethically choose to be unethical, that's fine. You have every right to do that. I might not like you very much. I might not want to see your film, but you have the right to do it as long as you think about it. So that's really what, what we're talking about. Do you think that, um, well, to phrase it differently, what do you think the impact of entertainment is on the society and, uh, well, let's say the worldwide community? And do you think that it is the personal responsibility of the artist to um, elevate uh, that society? You guys don't ask small questions, do you? Um, the impact of entertainment can't possibly be overstated. Um, let's back up one step here. We're not just talking about entertainment. We're talking about media. Um, so that opens the field a little bit. It's not like I'm only talking about filmmaking. It's film, television, the internet, video games, live theater, you name it, it's, it's media. Um, media used to be something that you had to seek out. If you wanted to see visual media, you had to buy a ticket. Now it's something you have to screen out. It's everywhere. Um, it's on our phones. It's on our laptops. It's in elevators are talking to us and showing us advertisements. Um, it's it's all around us all the time. And particularly for children, it's what's socializing them and educating them. Uh, if that's the case, then absolutely we have a responsibility for the messages we put out into the world. And going back to this ethical choice muscle, I like to call it, I find that very often young filmmakers, I shouldn't use the word young, new filmmakers um, of any age, don't really understand the messages that they're putting out into the world. There's a disconnect between what they think they're saying and the way that message is perceived by the audience. And one of the things that we're trying to do with the filmmakers that we're teaching at ASU is talk them through that choice. Get their ethical choice muscle working well enough so that the message they think they're putting out is the actual message they're putting out. And so, yeah, I I think we absolutely have a responsibility. Nobody is really saying that violence in the movies is a direct cause of violence in society. I think that would be a very hard proposition to prove. But does it make for a meaner society? And I mean meaner in the sense of a lesser society? Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, There's a statistic 
that the average American child, by the time he or she has reached their 18th birthday, has seen 16,000 murders on television, not counting the news and not counting movie promos. Now, for people who say, yeah, but it's only entertainment, it doesn't affect us at all, I would say 16,000 of anything in 18 years has to have an effect. Imagine what you would look like if you had 16,000 ice cream cones in 18 years. 16,000 of anything has an effect. If it has any kind of effect at all, it's something we ought to be talking about because we're putting our kids down in front of the television and they're spending more time in front of the TV than they are in school. And they're spending more time in front of the TV than they are with their parents. So we're educating them and we're socializing them and we're helping them to grow with media. So we darn well better figure out what we're teaching them. And what can we do? I mean, one of the things that you're, you're doing is teaching filmmakers how to communicate what's in their head and get it out in the way that uh, they're actually getting their point across. I know sometimes with films, uh, it becomes so subjective that maybe what the person set out to do is uh, the effect on the, op- on the audience can often be the opposite. I know I saw a movie called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer in a movie theater in Chicago when it came out. And there, this is a movie that just goes through a very realistic movie. It goes through and shows what it's like to be this serial killer and even gives, at one point, rules on how to be a serial killer. This seems very commonplace now, but at the time... Yeah, now Showtime has that new show, Dexter, which is por- right. basically portrait of a serial killer as hero. Right. This is, that's what I want to get to also. But at that particular time, in the theater that I was seeing, which was kind of an artsy theater in Chicago, um, people were cheering for this guy. And uh, I, I felt like I almost had a responsibility to leave the theater because I didn't want to be a part of this cheering for the, this serial killer. And then shortly thereafter, I saw Silence of the Lambs where the, the hero was serial, serial killer. And uh, since then, it's gotten... Much more extreme, I think. I, I turn on, you know, you turn on the TV, you see CSI, you see all these things. There's such a, a focus on serial killing, on murder, on, uh, you know, obviously this stuff makes great drama, but it does seem like I don't feel that same. I don't feel as affected by it now because it just seems to be everywhere. Um, do you think we're just getting more and more, um, running more and more into a, a, a dark? place as far as um, as a society? Um, do you think that media is bringing us into a place where we are uh, much more accepting of these kinds of um, portrayals? Another nice, small, specific question. Yeah. Ah, okay. I tell you, I, I actually um, have a theory on this that, that I talk about. Um, it's my 10% rule. And very briefly, what it is is that if you start with the level of sex and violence that society will accept without being shocked in any way, what I think our industry does and has done for a very long time, (coughs) excuse me, is we take that basic level of sex and violence and we push it 10%. Why do we do that? Marketing because it brings people into the theater. It allows us to try new techniques. It allows us to shock the audience. Now, once somebody does it, then other people start copying it 
because the first time you do a film that does well, everybody jumps on the bandwagon and repeats the same experiment. That moves society 10% further along the line with what they are desensitized to, what they will accept before being shocked. Well, now we can't keep repeating the same 10% because society's caught up to us. In order to shock them, we've now got to move another 10%. And we keep doing this. And I, I feel that that is the way that our business if our, if our business makes society a meaner place to live, that's how it happens. It's not that anyone in Hollywood consciously says, I want to teach the world to disrespect authority and to do drugs and to commit murder and to, you know, have rampant sex on screen. Nobody sets out to do that. There are a lot of good people in Hollywood. This is not... It's not a, a, a bad place peopled by devils. It's a, a place where a lot of good people are trying to function in a not-so-good system. The system forces this kind of extension of sex and violence and other things to bring in market share. So, but then really the system that you're, you're disputing or the system that's, that's in question here is the capitalist system. Because that's how Wall Street works. That's how this country works. It's all about the bottom line. And I think a big problem is, and this is something we've talked about before, is that when you mix art or artists with bottom line type people that are that are responsible for bringing in, quote, double digit profits in this quarter, you have a big problem. I mean, um, one of the reasons that we had such incredible art historically is because you had people giving patrons. artists, you had patrons. And to a great degree, I believe that our government, our society, needs to adopt a more uh, aggressive patronage of the arts if they don't want art to become as you said, driven by the bottom line, which is basically how can I saw three, pull out three more teeth, saw four, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's, so, so you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. But, but the problem is that we work in an enormously capital-intensive business. And until that societal revolution that you're talking about we have to figure out a way to work with what we have. The, the problem, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. The problem is this country is going in exactly the opposite direction. They're trying to marginalize the arts more and more, especially our current government. Um, we're losing arts programs in schools by the dozen. We're losing drama programs in schools by the double-digit dozen. We're losing music programs. All of the things that make us better, more noble people are being cut because they're not math and science, which are the things that allow us to compete in the global economic marketplace. All of that stuff is being marginalized. So in order to realize the sort of more utopian idea that you just presented, it's going to take an enormous shift of societal concerns and an enormous shift of capital. Until that happens, filmmakers have to figure out how, filmmakers and media makers have to figure out how to work under the present system where it is geared to the bottom line. And when you consider the expense of the average Hollywood film, 
and even the expense of small independent films, you have to find a way to work within the capitalist structure. Otherwise, you don't stand a chance of making the film that you want to make. Can you tell me, I don't mean to change the subject, but this is along the same lines, I think. At your film school, the way it's described, uh, this is at ASU, is that Arizona, Arizona State, State University. University. There, It is described as the uh, world's first hands-on filmmaking school. Now, is that is that somewhat what they say? I'm not sure. No, no. Uh, but I'll but I'll tell you what you it tell is. Me yeah, what yeah. It is? Because obviously there are a lot of hands-on yeah, filmmaking schools. No, no. What what we've done, I think, is we took a look at the other film schools in the country, um, particularly those in L.A. And obviously, if you want to form a film school. You can't compete with USC and UCLA. It's just, you know, until the Annenberg Foundation gives us $200 million, um, it's impossible. So what we decided to do was to create a system that made better, smarter filmmakers on a much smaller scale. And I think the way we've been able to do it is we're not the world's first hands-on program, but we are the first program that I know of anywhere that is based on the same four pillars that our school is based on. And those four pillars are, number one, our theater and film departments areas are thoroughly integrated, which allows filmmakers to draw on the much more ancient traditions of performance practice, textual analysis, etc., from the theater side. And it allows the film side to re-energize the theater side by providing technology to theatrical productions and and creating multimedia environments. The second uh, element, the second pillar is that we're not a button-pushing program. We are a program about narrative. Um, We discuss what makes a good narrative. How does structure affect what you're trying to say? What stories are interesting and what, which ones are not and why? Um, in other words, we're not talking about how to turn the camera on. We're talking about why to turn the camera on. The third is since we went into this with absolutely no equipment, I think we had one tiny digital camera that was in a box in the development office on a shelf. We got to start from scratch. So we built a studio and we bought all top-of-the-line equipment, the exact same equipment that students are going to use when they walk off our campus. We're heavily HD-based. Students can actually check out uh, some very sophisticated equipment. Uh, And so we basically want to keep their job skills completely current with the market. And the fourth pillar is everything we do is based on concepts of ethics. And again, that's not how to make a, a warm and fuzzy movie versus a bad movie. What it is is that students have to take an ethics of content class before they even enter the major, where we talk about what are the effects of portrayals of sex and violence and diversity issues on the audience. Uh, what messages do we want to send out in the world? Then, before they graduate, they have to take a business ethics course. Also, it's woven into every course they take, be it cinematography, directing, post-production. We talk about the effects that our decisions have on the outcome of the film and on the message that the film is presenting. 
all of our faculty are current filmmakers. We're not, they're not academics. Uh, they're becoming academics, but basically we all still make movies. I just finished a film a month ago. Um, and every student has to take everything. Nobody comes in and is able to say, well, I want to be a director, therefore I'm only going to take directing courses. No, they also have to take acting, textual analysis, directing. They have to take post-production. They have to take design. We put students through everything because I've found that the filmmakers I've worked with in my life that are the best filmmakers that I know know a lot about all different areas of production. So if you put all of that together, this is a one-of-a-kind program that doesn't exist in this form anywhere else. Um, to my knowledge, we are completely unique. Other schools have pieces of what we're doing, but the combination is what's totally unique. It sounds fantastic. I feel like going back to school. <laughs> sounds great. Can you tell us um, what it's like being a filmmaker in Arizona, uh, do you do you, when you make films, or you you must live in Arizona? Um, what's it like? I've lived in Arizona now. I guess this is going on the third year, and except for summertime, which every day I say to myself, human beings are not meant to live in the desert, <laughs> because I've never been so hot in my life. It, it actually is worse than when I was in the Sahara for a while, which is saying a lot. Um, but Arizona film production, Arizona is really a place to be now for film. Film production is exploding in the state. Back in January, the state legislature passed a series of comprehensive and terrific tax incentives for filmmakers. And these incentives kick in at a much lower level than most other states. Um, Do you know off the top of your head what the percentages are, the tax rebates and so forth? It can range up to 20% uh, depending on what the size of your budget is. $3 million, 20%. I just made a million-dollar film. That's 10%. But you also get an exemption from sales tax. You get an exemption from transaction tax. You get all kinds of benefits that go with it. So it actually adds up to a great deal more than the simple 10% or 20% that you get. Plus, the tax incentives are resellable so that if you don't need them, you can sell them to another company and recoup part of your budget. And that that's a way that they can get passed on and do everyone some, some, some good. Um, the program is terrific, and what it's done is it's caused, caused an explosion of film production in Arizona. We now have more productions wanting to come in than we have the infrastructure for. So ASU is very busily trying to train people who will stay in Arizona, as well as people who will come here. Obviously, a lot of people want to come to L.A., but we want to keep people there, and the rising level of production is going to keep a lot of them there, and that will make for even more production down the line. The other thing is Arizonans aren't jaded by film production. You know, you talk to people about film in L.A., they've heard it all before. They've seen it all before. It's nothing new. It's nothing exciting. Out there, there's a wide-eyed enthusiasm for it that is so refreshing. It reminds you of why you went into this business in the first place, that sort of sense of wonder of being able to use film to create what your imagination can envision. There's none of that cynicism that goes with being in the heart of the business here. And that's a, that's a really special thing. So it's a great place to be right now. I think that that word, cynicism, um, 
it's it's interesting because it really plays into this entire conversation that we're having. I think that that it is. Um, it's I I feel like any sort of enthusiasm, just sincere enthusiasm, is met with a sort of disdain and a sort of disrespect for your intelligence, for one thing. Whereas the sort of jaded cynicism is is the, the the way that you're supposed to operate because if you do seem to be too excited about something or want to change the world or want to really express something to an audience you're you're kind of a a retard i mean i i, I was saying to Joel once the only people that can really be good in the movies now are either in, inanimate objects like or pigs like babe or, or Forrest Gump's, where something is actually wrong with their brain. But an actual heroic character, a main character that has a worldview of enthusiasm and love and compassion and wants to do good, it just, it's, it's a big taboo. You can't do it. I think that some of the cynicism has permeated into... Uh, the acting that's going on on stay on uh, in film and television in particular, uh, it seems like the acting style of our times is sort of throw everything away, and I think that that is as is a result of this kind of cynical cynicism that he's talking about. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. I, I think first of all, it, it stems from the fact that if you if you were to go out now, they're holding this film festival elsewhere in the building. And if you were to go out... Tell us what it is, because I, I know nothing about it. Uh, neither do I. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> it's, today was the Ethics Day. Pepperdine University, in conjunction with uh, Act One, uh, held a day of, of discussions of ethics, which is why I'm here giving their keynote address. Um, but as far as the film festival itself, I know it's a student film festival. I know they're giving an award. That's all I know. But... If you were to talk to a number of the people that are out in that lobby and express tremendous wide-eyed enthusiasm for something, they would say things like, you'll learn, <laughs> or sorry, can't be that way. It's a lovely vision, never going to happen. Um, that is what I got so tired of being in and around the business all the time in Los Angeles. And that's what I don't have any of in Arizona. I can walk into a room and present exactly that Forrest Gump worldview, hopefully without the uh, mannerisms that go with it, and people will accept it at face value and they'll say, hey, that's terrific because that jaded cynicism doesn't exist there. And I agree with you about the acting style. I think one of the reasons that we don't have the 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 real sort of superstars that we used to have is that that the every action reaction every technique now is laced with cynicism it's laced with that world weary i'm too cool to be here kind of thing and i'm very tired of that i mean to me if you can't find that sense of wonder in creating another person on the screen for an audience. And you can't realize that, that that's probably the most wonderful job in the world, if that's where your talents lie. You really don't deserve to be doing it because there are a lot of people who don't make it who do have that feeling. 
you know. And I'm very tired of that that oh-so-self-conscious and too-cool attitude. It just it doesn't work for me. I, agree. I, I couldn't agree more. Can you tell us something about the project that you just did? Sure. Uh, it, it is actually uh, an office comedy about vampires, of really? all things. But it's a comedy, not a horror movie. Uh, we had we were we were very lucky. The 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 uh, filmmakers, uh, the core group of filmmakers, uh, two brothers in Arizona, the Ronalds brothers, long track record of short films, and um, they're terrific to work with. And we had an amazing cast. We got Robert Wagner on one end, and we got Jason Mewes on the other end. And in the middle, we have Daryl Hammond, Dave Foley, Amy Davidson, Judd Nelson. I mean, it's a really first-rate cast. And this is for a movie that costs less than a million dollars, significantly less than a million dollars. They, all of these people wanted to be there. They liked the script. They enjoyed meeting the Ronalds and the rest of us. It was interesting for them to work in Arizona for a change, um, and they really had a good time, you know. Uh, at least most of them did, and it's, uh, it's a very funny script. Uh, it's probably going to be released, my guess is September, because as an odd coincidence, the director and his brother and the line producer all had babies within two and a half weeks of the end of production. So let us just say that they are all a little bit busy right now. Uh, I was the executive producer on the project and helped put it together, did all the legal and helped guide the whole production. Um, but yeah, I, so it's going to be released probably in September. And what's it called again? Nether Beast Incorporated. Right. It's a redefinition of, of the old vampire myths uh, done in a very it, – it, it's like the show The Office, only with vampires. Oh, um, it's very, very funny. It's a very interesting, again, non-cynical take on all of this stuff. And, uh, and it was great fun to do, you know. And the thing that I'm looking forward to is there are lots of projects on the horizon out there and, and lots of different ways to get things done. And it's, uh, it's really turning into a great haven. I didn't expect that when I went there to teach. I thought I would basically have to wait until summer vacation and then come back to L.A. to do a movie. But I've got more to do there than I can handle. So, All right. Uh, I guess we're at the Film bite section. This is the section where we uh, come up with a piece of information for up-and-coming filmmakers out there that can help them on their journey to making their first film. Well, I would say that my film bite would be, um, from speaking with Miguel, uh, it doesn't matter where you are physically in the universe. It does matter, however, where you are emotionally and where you are in terms of your personal responsibility to communicate your artwork. So be you wherever you are. Make the best film that you can make with as much consciousness as you can give it. My uh, film bite is very simple. It's um, stay away from people that try to make you smaller than you are. Hang around the people that try and make you bigger. Let's see. I wasn't expecting this. Uh, okay, my film bite would be, and this is the teacher side of me, if you're going to go into filmmaking and you're struggling to make your first film, 
second film, third film, learn as much as you possibly can about the business and the art of filmmaking. Too many filmmakers these days don't know enough. You can learn by reading. You can learn by going to school. You can learn by talking to other people. Um, learn everything you possibly can. It will make you a better filmmaker. All right. Great. So we want to thank you, Miguel, for thank being so here with much. us. This is really enlightening and inspiring. And we want to thank the um, Directors Guild of America for letting us use this little theater. They didn't return my phone calls, however. However, for Miguel, they took care of us. <laughs> and so thank you to them. And, and I just want to say thank you, Miguel, for the work you're doing um, in ethics and entertainment. I think it's an extremely important thing that you've taken on. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you.